Nemutasa fekeweto arahato sambu dasa nemutasa goeto arahato sambu dasa Pekkaweto arahato samma sambutasa. Okay. Um, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is the first time I've ever talked on a Thursday, and I was told to expect people who haven't had so much experience of sitting. So I'll try to keep things reasonably clear, and I'll try to leave as much time as possible for questions. All right? Um, first of all... <laughs> uh, a huge, huge debt of gratitude to this community for sending me on retreat in Spirit Rock in March. Uh, people's kindness allowed me to do that. Um, I did my best. You know, my capacities are weak, but I did what I could. And uh, I feel enormously, enormously grateful to all of you. Um, Secondly, um, <laughs> two hellos <laughs> to David in Japan, who always gets this on Audio Dharma later <laughs> and writes me wonderful letters. And I hope he's just fine because he's terrific. And to Linda, who's now up in Milwaukee, um, who's been writing me this year and also, you know, and anybody else who hears it on the audio dharma, but, you know, for those two people especially, uh, hi. <laughs> this year, um, I've been playing with the question of happiness. Uh, you know, the Buddha promises us an end of suffering. And that's not some kind of huge void, you know, you know, according to the teachings, that's, that end of suffering is filled with compassion and with light and with purity and with all kinds of things. Now, they're at a different level. We know happiness that is the opposite of sadness. We know darkness, that's the opposite of light. But every religion in its way, and Buddhism is no exception, teaches us that behind these oppositions is a kind of purity that is filled with joy. Now, 
Okay. <laughs> How do we get there? <laughs> and the paradox that's been interesting me in the last little while is, you know, we have these three grave precepts. In the Mahayana, we tend to stress them more, but they're throughout Buddhism. To do no harm, to do all possible good. And then the third one is variously to purify the mind or to save all sentient beings. And there have been some very good arguments made that that's the identical thing. Okay? But... The thing that intrigues me, and I'm just going to put it out here, and then I'm going to talk a bit about our work, and then I'm going to come back to it, all right, is that we do not become happy because other people start stop harming us. The paradox is that we learn how to become happy as we learn how to stop harming others. And that the teachings do this again and again and again in increasingly subtle and complex levels. Now, this is very counterintuitive. You know, if he doesn't beat me up, I don't hurt, right? Well, wrong. (laughs) Yes, you hurt. But you can be unharmed. And if you are unharmed, then your capacity to deal with that bad thing that's happening is much, much, much more effective. The Buddha talks about this as two arrows. If you get hit by one arrow, it really hurts, right? If you get hit by a second arrow right on top of the first one, it makes it a whole lot worse. Everybody know this one or is this new to some? Yeah? You can't pull out both arrows at the same time. It's too dangerous. So what you got to do is you got to take care of that second arrow. All right? The first arrow is what happens to us. Death, old age, illness, bad things, awfulnesses of all kinds. All right? The second arrow is what we do with that with our minds, with our greed, our anger, our ignorance, with our clinging. And that's what we have to learn not, how not to do. And as we learn how not to do that, our capacity for happiness begins to develop in spite of everything. I mean, I used to say this all the time to our patients and to us to remind us the Buddha never promised us we weren't going to get sick. He never promised us we weren't going to die. He never promised us we weren't going to get old. He never promised us that bad things weren't going to happen. What he promised us 
is that it is possible to develop a peaceful and compassionate heart right in the middle of all that. And that's what we're training to do. You know? We're not training so when the atomic bomb falls, it misses us personally. <laughs> you know? We're training so that our capacity to respond, to respond with loving kindness, with compassion, to good things with joyousness and at the core with equanimity develops a strength that allows us to be peaceful in the middle of everything. Okay. So the paradox I want to play with today in a minute is we have to stop doing harm. If we want to get started on this path, we just have to stop doing harm, period. There's no way that we can free ourselves while we're creating harm. So we have to stop what we know about and learn what we don't know about and keep doing it. Okay. Now I want to digress a minute. Um, We can come back to this a little bit more. Uh, Most people are interested in our project. We are a very small Buddhist chaplaincy project. Um, There's, I'm the only foreigner. There's a Khmer nun. And the other seven people are Khmer lay people. We work with destitute AIDS patients. We do chanting, we do meditation, we do Reiki, we do healing touch, we do social work, we do whatever seems appropriate. And often we do things that aren't appropriate and that gets back at us. (laughs) Uh, With the deep understanding that the Buddha's compassion is already present. We're not bringing anything to the patients. What we're trying to help them do is access what's already there. Yeah? And we make lots of mistakes. Uh... There isn't a lot of competition for our job. So So there's kind of a lot of room for our learning on the project. Uh, My first year, I think the most important thing I did was kiss people. The patients would say, you know, my family never comes to see me and they sit across the room and, you know, that foreign nun, she sits on my bed and she massages me and she hugs me and she kisses me. 
And that made up for a whole lot of stupidity that I was doing. (laughs) This year, the big thing that's happened in our project as a project is we had someone teach us healing touch, which is, uh, it was developed by a nurse in conjunction with a traditional healer. I've been doing Reiki for some years, and I had taught several of my staff Reiki. But everybody wanted to learn the healing touch, and everybody wanted to do Reiki, and now all of us do it. And if you go to our brand new website, brand new website, <laughs> not it's got like lots of mistakes still on it, okay? But you're going to see my staff at work, and I'm not going to have to say another word. Because the power of the love that comes through them is palpable. All right. And (laughs) this year we took on a new hospital, which is a total (laughs) hellhole. This is a hospital in which we lost a patient last August. Um, she had been thrown out of her village seven months pregnant when her husband died and found her way to Takamau, which is just south of Phnom Penh, and was in the hospital. And they didn't know she had tuberculosis, and they kept saying she didn't. And, you know, she lost the baby, of course. And my staff was taking good care of her. And I got to meet her when I got back from my trip last year a couple of times. She was 22 years old. And she couldn't lie down. She would, you know, the, the, the bed she was at would tilt it up and she'd just like rest by leaning against it. And her clothes really smelled. And so one day I, I was just, you know, I mean, we do whatever, so... I had brought some soap to wash them, but they'd been eaten by rats, so what she was wearing was all she had. And so I gave my staff a little bit of money, and one of my staff added a whole bunch of her own clothes to that. So, you know, by two days later, she was able to be clean. And within a week of that, she was dead. And in that hospital, they have no budget at all for cremation. And they bury the destitute in the land behind the hospital itself. Now, in Cambodia, you don't want to bury people because it harms their rebirth. Uh, the only people really who get buried, beside the Chinese, okay, the Chinese do it differently, but of the ethnic Khmer, the only time you bury is when a woman is pregnant and she dies when she's pregnant. And then you take the baby out and you go deep in the forest and you bury her in one place and the baby in another place because otherwise she is the most dangerous kind of ghost. So burial is not like something people want. So we talked to the head of the hospital, 
Anyway, so we moved into that hospital after I came back after the March retreat. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> All right. My whole staff goes down there one day a week and people follow up for the hard cases a second day a week. All right. And we just, we just bombard them. Everybody there gets as much Reiki and healing touch and monkey bomb and massage and gossip and talk and love as as they want and we can give them and they don't like me to go down because they say if you go down the patients will start talking about money we go down and the patients don't so for the first four months I couldn't go down there right but my staff got them trained and finally I could go down there right because we do not do money Okay, our project does not do food, money, and medicine except under very, 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 very unusual circumstances. Mary Knoll is doing basic money for people's food. Okay, they are also supporting the medical care in that hospital. Another organization is providing antiretroviral medicine. These, this is, we couldn't go there if these things weren't happening. Okay, but people see a foreigner and they say, oh, foreigners are rich. She's going to give me X. All right. So after about three months on a Saturday when they had a couple of people who were really, really, really sick and they didn't want to wait uh, until Tuesday, I went down. I started seeing people and people were fine. And then a new patient started telling me she needed money. And I said, I'm sorry, our organization doesn't have money, and my boss would fire me, I said. And uh, she started to protest, and one of the other patients said to her, no, that's not what they do. <laughs> they have monkey bomb, they have, Reiki. we call it samadhi, we call it meditation with our hands when we do the healing touch and Reiki because that makes it intelligible. And really what it fits into is Khmer traditional magical healing. Okay? I mean, we go right into that slot in people's minds. (laughs) If I'm doing six Reiki, you know, symbols in each of someone's seven chakras, man, that is like they've been seeing that stuff since they were born. (laughs) So... The patients themselves control that. So I can go down there now. I went back and I said to my staff, boy, you guys really got them trained. (laughs) Okay. What do we do? We do what's there to be done. We chant with the dying. We chant for the dead. In the National AIDS Hospital, we put a a Buddha in the mortuary two years ago and every major precept day. That's on the new moon and the full moon. We go in there and we scrub the place out and we purify it with incense and Tibetan amrita and we sit down and we chant our hearts out. And if somebody is there at the time, we do special chanting for them and we place them so that they're included in our group for chanting and we leave them uncovered until it's over and then we cover them again. Um, It's a beautiful place. It's really, it's one of our favorite activities. 
<laughs> if you don't think we're weird by now. <laughs> but it makes us very, very happy because the place where the destitute get cremated, they get treated like garbage. And to have a place where they can go and finish their dying peacefully and do their transition in an atmosphere of warmth and love is something that all of us treasure. And when we go back, we're going to do that with the Tuckmau Hospital Mortuary, which is, if you look at the website, you'll see two pictures of it. <laughs> it's got a very old broken statue and hasn't been cleaned in years. <laughs> So that's the kind of stuff we do, right? You know, we work with a lot of organizations. If we've got kids who are going to be orphans, we call the organizations that take care of kids who are going to be orphans. If we've got somebody who needs a place to live and they are eligible, we call places that have places to live. In other words, we do a whole lot of networking. Rather than having facilities ourselves, What we work is in the interstices so that we can help people access what is there for them. And so that we can help them go through this terrible process of leaving everything behind with as much peace as is possible in an atmosphere of love. First couple of years were really hard. <laughs> Those of you who heard me over the years know I just come in here. <gasps> <laughs> What's happened for me personally in the last year and a half, I'd say, is that I now know that when I go in that I can trust something to take over that allows me to be present, fully present with the patient and both of us and the family to be contained in a larger and more compassionate space. And I can trust that. You know, I I can trust that my stupidity and obsessiveness and anger and all the rest of that is just going to fall away for that period of time. Now, just when this is happening, (laughs) my staff is taking over all the fun work. And I'm stuck with the administration and the fundraising and the policy setting and all that stuff that I really, 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 really hate. (laughs) So the issue of not doing harm for me has become a very interesting one. The month that I was at Spirit Rock, they couldn't email me. They not only handled everything, but they knew that they handled it. You know, like Gil said a few years ago at Hidden Villa, 
The twelfth step of liberation is not liberation. The twelfth step of liberation is knowledge of liberation. Well, I came back and they all knew they were liberated. (laughs) How do I keep from getting in the way? How do I keep from harming what is fundamentally the most essential thing that can happen because I'm 62, you know? If this project is going to do good over time, it's got to become theirs and they've got to become teachers in their turn. And they've got to do that. And because they are Cambodian and do it from inside an understanding of Cambodian life that is infinitely deeper than anything I'll ever scratch the surface of, they need to have all possible support to do that with meticulousness and care. So we study the precepts. <laughs> this year we did the Four Noble Truths and we did work hard and too short. We just got a bare taste of the Eightfold Path. But what intrigued me about the Eightfold Path is how much it's like, you know, you get, you get this little kernel in the precept that tells you not to lie, right? Okay, that's good. Right? Then you get to write speech and no harsh speech, no saying things at the wrong time, no saying things in the wrong way, no distortions, no brag. I mean, the, the list. <laughs> no gossip, no vain talk. <laughs> if I take this stuff seriously, man, I'm just going to go become a Trappist. <laughs> In other words, what happens is that once we enter the path of not doing harm, you know, and we ground that not only in the teachings but in our meditation practice and the clarity that comes in our meditation practice, then we're never free, not for an instant. Our judgment, not not some kind of analytical, critical, distant judgment, but our assessment of what we're doing doesn't get to rest. You know? Yeah. I can't go home and snipe with <laughs> Junie and I've known each other for more than forty years and you know <laughs> I can't home, go home and, 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 and you know say all the things to Judy that you know I can't say in public because I can't say them. If I want to follow this path, if I want to become free of the poison 
that is part of my own makeup. And if I want to have joyousness in the space where that poison takes up so much room, I've just got to stop doing that. You know, I can't stop somebody else from saying something mean about me. But certainly, if I deal with it correctly in my own heart, I will be able to deal more effectively with it, you know, in the situation. When the patients are after me for money because I'm a foreigner and I've got to be rich, you know, then I need to be able to meet them with compassion and love and a strategy that takes them out of their own habitual thinking. It's not enough to say I don't have money. That just leaves them in the same place and a bit angry or upset because they thought they were going to get help. So what's incumbent on me is not to get defensive about it, not to internalize it. (laughs) There's only one good thing I can say about this whole business, right? I mean, when I was teaching, when I was teaching, we were going through the Four Noble Truths. One of the things Gil always says about the Third Noble Truth is, this is the good news. The good news is there's a way out of suffering, right? It is good news. All right. (laughs) Well, the Eightfold Path is the bad news. Because it's really hard if you start to take any, 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 any tiny bit of the Eightfold Path seriously. It's really hard, right? Okay. But even the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest step moves us towards joy, moves us toward freedom. It's not like we have to store it all up and be miserable and wait, right? And say, oh, I'm going to get my reward later. No. Every tiny, 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 tiny bit of it that we're able to do, you know, opens us, strengthens us brings us closer to that joy and that peacefulness. So it doesn't matter, you know, at a certain level, that I am a really rotten practitioner with no discipline at all, who has to put myself in extreme circumstances because otherwise I just wouldn't do any work. envy for people who can just like go to mountainsides. I do that from time to time and it's really, really lovely. But you know, people who can follow through with the discipline of that are amazing. You know, you put me in a war zone and I'm 
sort of okay because I'm up against how badly I'm doing all the time. All right? You put me on a mountainside. Oh, man, I'm just the most liberated. <laughs> So it's good for me to be in the thick of it. It's good for me with my karma and my character and all of the rest of that to be in the thick of it. And part of what's emerging for me is how can I remain in the thick of it without getting in the way of my staff? In, in Zen practice, we call that a koan. <laughs> All right. So just to go back to the central issue. If we want to find the release from suffering that the Buddha promises us, and promises us is accessible to all of us. The first thing is to stop doing harm. The first thing is not to try to avoid harm being done to us. The first thing is to stop doing harm ourselves. And as we stop doing harm, then everything changes. And on the positive side, on the proactive side, we've got the Brahma-Vahara, you know. We've got all of these. We've got the Paramita. We have lots of positive things we can do to strengthen ourselves. But the system, it's, it's a tripod, you know. It rests on stopping doing harm, doing good, and seeing clearly. And as long as we do harm, it is impossible for us to see clearly. Because when we commit harm, we have two paths. Either we repent, which is hideously painful, Or we defend the harm we've done. And then we just keep going. Harm is never static. You know, it's like Richard III in Shakespeare. Well, if I just kill one more person, I'll be fine, you know. (laughs) It's never static. And stopping doing harm is never static. Mm Mm-hmm. If we commit harm, we become more afraid. If we stop doing harm, we start to be less afraid. And every tiny, 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 tiny bit of it that we can manage moves us towards greater happiness. Okay. Um, Questions? It's for the, um, the, the, for the web and for people with hearing-assisted devices. Mm-hmm. How does one 
move in the world without becoming engulfed by the suffering that's all around. And to be specific, I, I don't want to get into a counseling session, but my brother just died, and um, it, it came out of nowhere, this cancer. And I took care of him in the last four months of his life, and I found myself becoming so engulfed because he was in pain that, and this has happened to me before, with, like with my parents, and yeah. my question is, how does one be with people and... Um, even be in the world <laughs> without becoming so pulled into the suffering and suffering because other people are suffering. It's, it's one of the most important questions there is that you're asking, and I'm very grateful that you're asking it, and asking it with so much integrity of feeling and articulateness. All right? I don't think there's a person here who misunderstands. Huh? The Brahma Vihara, I'm going to sound a little technical for a minute, but only for a minute, okay? Loving kindness, compassion, shared joyousness, and equanimity. The trap on the compassion side is that we fall into the pit with the person and then they're just two of us miserable instead of one of us miserable. Right? And that is a trap. I say trap as though it were more superficial than it is. This is something that everyone with an open heart struggles with, okay? Because the suffering is right in front of us. The moment our eyes are open, you don't have to go to Cambodia. You don't have to go out of this room, you know? It's right here. That's why we're all here. There isn't a person I know who doesn't start Dharma practice because of suffering. Any exceptions? <laughs> okay. When two people get in the pit together, then it often helps the one person somewhat, but it does that at a terrible cost. What we develop the capacity to do, slowly develop the capacity to do, and at first by envisioning it, is to see that suffering clearly and bring the flow of compassion to it rather than entering it ourselves. Now, for my staff, Healing Touch and Reiki are really good tools for this. When, I, when, I, when I'm teaching this part, 
in our Brahma-Vihara practice training. I can draw on that. Because when you're doing Reiki with somebody who's dying, all right, sometimes you'll get their headache, but it'll go away after a bit, all right? You don't catch their illness. What happens is that the energy that is flowing through you that you are being a vehicle for that is helping them become more rested also helps you along the way. All this is real abstract. Okay. When I was learning Tonglen practice, which is a Tibetan practice of breathing in suffering and breathing out compassion, um, I was getting some help from Tenzin Palmo, who is a British woman who spent 12 years in a cave. And I was writing her about it because I was getting sick. You know, I was, you know, I was, I was getting fevers from people and things like that, which is considered a good sign. <laughs> and what she wrote me is that one of the ways that Tonglin is taught is that you visualize a dorje. That's that Tibetan sort of eightfold little thingy that they carry right in your heart chakra made of the purest, most brilliant crystal. And when you breathe in the suffering, it just disappears into that crystal. And then you breathe out the compassion. But before she wrote me that, I somehow had the idea that we were like breathing in the suffering to get the suffering. Right? And I don't think that this is an unusual idea. You know? But the point is not to get the suffering. The point is for the suffering to go away. (laughs) What we're trying to do is make there be less suffering, period. So if we clear it from the person, it's not so we can absorb it. If we clear it from the person... It's so that it can be cleared and the atmosphere can be lighter and there can be more space for peacefulness. This can be learned. My first year, my unofficial supervisor since I started this project in the year 2000 is the head of Mary Nolan, he used to say, you know, even if you quit now, you've done so much. He said, if it's not life-giving for you, it's not life-giving for the patients. And I'd say, the fact that it's hard doesn't mean it's not life-giving. I mean, I was living in Burnout City in those days. (laughs) Okay. I am convinced this can be learned. All right? 
It's seven years later, and I know this can be learned. But one of the ways that helps us learn it is to understand that there is a crucial difference between seeing very, very, very clearly the suffering that someone is undergoing and becoming a participant in it. And that compassion, and this is where vipassana is really an excellent practice for this because vipassana is about the seeing, you know? Because as we see it with clarity, the compassion arises spontaneously and moves towards it. And of course we're sad. And of course it's hard. And of course we spend a lot of time dealing with what does it mean to us to lose people that we love. Right? And of course, you know, we need all our own support systems. Right? But it can be done and it can be learned. It is possible. It is not only possible, it is essential that this work not, not only not lead to burnout, but lead to joy. Because as it leads to joy within us, we have that much more richness for the next time. Because there's always another time. You know, it would be wonderful if these things stopped. One of the things Jim said to me, and then I'll let you say something. <laughs> One of the things Jim, my, my supervisor, said to me is, you try to be 100% present with the patients. Present, present. Try to be 100% present everywhere else also. You know, when you leave the hospital and you go and you eat a good dinner with a friend, it's all right to taste the food. It's all right to appreciate your friend's kindness. It's all right to see the beauty of the sunset. You know, we tend to think that by doing those things, we're somehow betraying the person that we're trying to help. But it's exactly the reverse. The more capacity we develop to be present for the beauty in our lives, the more strength we have to be present for the sadness. So we give ourselves, I give my staff huge amounts of time off, huge amounts of meditation time, huge amounts of training time. All right? I monitor. <laughs> <laughs> But if my staff is going to be able to do this work and carry on this work and teach this work, they have to have that. And most of them are way ahead of me. Three out of, my, I, three out of eight staff have got AIDS themselves. 
Two other staff members do not have AIDS, but one lost a husband and one lost a son to AIDS. The one who lost her son to AIDS also lost eight children to the Khmer Rouge. I'm dealing in a population that knows more about suffering and death than you and I can even begin to imagine. All right? And their capacity to keep going. I mean, if you're dying, you want my Khmer nun with you. She is everybody's grandma and the Buddha in one little tiny 35-kilo packet. <laughs> you know, you, could, you can put her in your hand luggage on an airplane. <laughs> she's 70 years old. You know, she's got lots of other nutsy things. But, man, when she's present... Right? And my staff know this. They know how important it is, okay, to be able to take joy in what's joyous. You know, the Brahma Vihara are not four different things. Loving kindness is the energy that moves into the world. Compassion is what happens when it meets suffering. Mudita, joyousness, is what happens when it meets joyousness. Equanimity is the way it rests in itself. I'm very weak on equanimity, but that's a good training practice for this. I'm just beginning to respect how much better it would be if I were stronger on equanimity. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah? But... We do this, and it is not only possible, it is learnable, and as we learn it, we move ourselves toward joy and toward being much more deeply helpful to the people that we love. Okay? Thank you. It's 8.56. Should we let the people who need to go, go? Or, yes. Uh, it's, I, I've got my two-page thing there. It's uh, www.cambodiaaidsproject.org. Uh, <laughs> but the two-page, the two-page project summary is in tiny, tiny, tiny type, but it's there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Question? Yes, please. Hello. Om, Om, Om. I think we're all just so inspired to have you here tonight. And your, I just bow to your joy and the gems that you've given us and I know that you you you've been through and seen so much suffering and to see you laugh and and your joy and I just really feel that we're in the presence of a liberated saint (laughs) I know I know here here comes your humility you're in trouble (laughs) Well, I, 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 but thank you anyway. <laughs> I, 
I'm not the judge, but I think you're doing really well in the equanimity department. So thank you, thank you so much for everything. But this is what the Buddha promises us. That's the point. This is what the Buddha promises us. He doesn't promise us that we're going to be rich and live in Woodside. (laughs) Okay, he doesn't promise us that someone's going to save the whales. Okay? He doesn't promise us, although I wish he did, and this is a very active one, that they would stop selling eight-year-old girls into prostitution in Cambodia. He doesn't promise us any of that. What he promises us is that we can develop a joyous and compassionate heart to bring to everything. And that as we do that, as we stop doing harm ourselves, as we learn how to do good, as we learn to see more clearly that we are at least whatever minuscule counterweight, okay, we can be. And that's just as true in Silicon Valley as it is in Cambodia or Rwanda or any of those places that I'm scared to go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank all of you. And for those of you who are just beginning, how wonderful. How wonderful for you. You know? It's going to be hard sometimes. You're going to have a lot of help along the way, especially in this community. But to take that first step along the Buddha's path is one of the great miracles that happens in our lives. And I wish all of you, I wish all of us, wherever, you know, we are in this, but especially those of you who are just beginning, you know, I wish all of you, you know, the fullest possible realization, you know, the fullest possible freedom, the fullest possible joy. Thank you.